Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 22, which you'll find on page 911 of a pew Bible. And as you arrive there, I, I invite you to stand out of respect for the reading of God's word. Remind you uh, that we're here in our series in the book of Acts, and we're seeing all that the Lord Jesus Christ is doing from his heavenly throne to build his church. And we have just witnessed um, several weeks ago before the snow interrupted us, uh, we we saw um, how Jesus's disciples are now doing the miracles that Christ himself did, um, raising a man uh, lame from birth, and now he is leaping and praising God. And, and, and here we arrive in verse in chapter four. As they were speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated, common men. They were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And we cannot deny it, but in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Amen. You may be seated. Well, friends, there's a movement that I have um, occasionally encountered, and it's, it's called a movement back to the early church, back to the ancient days when the church had just, forgot, uh, had just begun. 
Um, and Pentecost had just happened and the Holy Spirit had, had just been poured out. And there's this desire that if we could just get back to the early days of the church, uh, that everything would, would be set on the right path again. Well, I've occasionally wondered whether that's really what we're, what we're ready for, really what we want. Because if we were to go back to the early days of the church, sure, we'd see um, the, the very dramatic and exciting and cool things that the disciples were doing in the name of Jesus. We'd see a lame man, uh, a man who couldn't walk from birth, uh, standing up and miraculously leaping and praising God. But friends, we'd also encounter something else. We'd encounter a lot of persecution. In fact, we see it here for the first time in the book of Acts, um, but it's going to just keep going on and on and on. That not only triumph, but also tribulation is a feature of the life of the church. From the very beginning, they're seeing uh, Jesus' kingdom uh, reach and stretch. But at the very same time, they are also seeing um, people who want to resist Christ Jesus, pushing back and threatening um, believers in Christ. And so if we're really ready to go back to receive from from the early church uh, the very best that it has to offer, then we have to be ready for persecution. We have to be ready not only for triumph, but also tribulation. And here's, here's the kicker. We have to be ready to take a courageous stand for the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what this text is, is screaming loud and clear. It is showing us this, this picture of what the apostles, what Peter and John and what the rest of the disciples did in the face of persecution. When people pushed back against Jesus, they took a courageous stand. I want to tag a text, as it were. I want, I want you to, um, to, note, to take note of a text because I'm going to return to it. It's right here. It's verse 13 in your, in your passage. And it says this. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and they perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. Now that's a text to keep your finger on. Because I think um, it is what this passage wants you to see and it's what this passage wants to teach your heart. Christians, respond to persecution with courage. With courage. What does courage look like? See, I have a brief outline for you in, in your bulletin. You can follow that along if you'd like. What does courage look like? Here in this passage, we see it leaping off the page um, in the actions of Peter and John. And what we see is that courage is this. It looks like a readiness to do and to say what God says is right, even if it costs you, even if it hurts, even if the world punches back. Courage looks like a bold willingness to be God's witnesses, even persecution comes your way. Here we see Peter and John and they are, um, they are surrounded by a crowd because they've just performed an amazing miracle and it was done in the name of Jesus. It was not their power, but his that caused a man 
lame from birth, to rise and to leap. And, and, and at the very moment that this happens, there's a new, some new faces that push through the crowd. It's the religious leaders, the same guys that we encountered back in the book of Luke when we were going through Luke. The Sadducees, the Pharisees, the, the powerful men of Jerusalem. And it's not long before these men have laid a hold of Peter and John and the crowd cries out, but they haul them away and put them in prison. Why? Because they heard their words and they knew the power upon which these men were able to do their miracle. It was in whose name? The name of Jesus. That's a controversial name. And these religious leaders were the same ones who had had enough of Jesus and plotted his destruction. And so when they hear this miracle done this name, they haul Peter and, and John off and they put them in prison overnight. And then the next day, they bring them before the highest court in, in, um, in, in Jewish Israel, that is. And it is the Sanhedrin. council of the high priests and you can kind of picture in your head what it would be like for these men who had been uh, locked in prison overnight they don't hear about how their word is growing all they see is a dark cell and then they are brought out of their captivity and the first thing they see is this semicircle of men standing before them dressed in their in their um uh, their um, sacred garments standing before the men interrogating them Now, you have to remember, these were the same men. This was the same council that just months ago had orchestrated the death of Jesus. They'd come and they'd falsely imprisoned Jesus. They'd hauled them before before their council. They'd interrogated him. They'd trapped him or tried to trap him with their questions. And then they brought him before the Romans and, and pled that he be crucified. And all of Israel saw that happen. And so here's Peter and John, and, and I would imagine that going through their head is, this seems a lot like what just happened to our Savior. And, and then these men that stand before them in all their intimidating features uh, start asking them questions, which are obviously a trap. Right here in verse 7. They say this. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Whose name was it again, Peter and John, that you called upon for this man to be raised from, the, uh, raised from his, his illness? Let's hear it. Whose name? That's right. The name of Jesus. And, and here's the thing. They know that this is a trap because if they say that any other name than Yahweh caused this miracle, then the law says that they can be put to death. And Jesus isn't an answer that, that the Sanhedrin is going to accept. So Peter and John know that if they say, if they repeat that name, the Sanhedrin could put them to death. It's a trap. Isn't that a Star Trek thing? It's a trap. You know, it is a trap. And it's right. It's laid before them. I think I messed that up, didn't I? Oh, it's Star Wars. Thank you. 
I'm going to pay for that later. <laughs> it's a trap. And it is. Well, it, I mean, imagine if you're in this position. You've been, uh, you, you've been laid a hold of. You've been put in prison overnight. You're standing before this council. You know what saying the name of Jesus is going to mean. Do you say it? Well, look at what Peter and John did. They, they don't hold back. A firm commitment in the face of threats. They, they, they even build it up. They say, let all of Israel know that Jesus Christ of Nazareth is the name that healed this man. Notice what it is about their courage, their willingness to say and to speak and to do what God has called them uh, to do. Um, Notice something about it. It's not rude. They're not rubbing it in the faces of the Sanhedrin. It's not rowdy. The language they're using is focused and measured. It's not arrogant. Courage isn't arrogant. Courage isn't rowdy. Courage isn't rude. But courage is clear and it is bold. And that's what we see. They they, they just lay it out there. They, They speak truth and they don't apologize for it. They say, it was the name of Jesus. We have to say that. And then when, when they, they all confer and they come back and say, all right, we're going to let you off, but you can't, you can't say the name of Jesus anymore. Stop teaching that. And they say, you know what? We're not going to do that. We're going we're gonna to keep doing what God says is right. There they are, ready to do and to say what God says is right, even if it costs them a bold willingness to be God's witnesses, even if the world attacks. You know, friends, we need this courage. We need that courage in our hearts because it's not something that comes naturally to us. Don't we feel the the cowardice in our own hearts? Don't don't we sense the, the, the... the pressure in these kinds of pressure uh, cooker situations to bend and to break and, or, or at least to water down the truth a little bit. You know, there's a kind of cowardice that only tells safe truths. Do you know what I mean? You know, we, we, can, we can pretend that we're bold, but we avoid all those things that might be triggers for people. And so we'll, we'll talk about how how human beings make many mistakes. I, I'm one that, that makes mistakes, but we, but we shy away from calling sin, sin. Our hearts are prone to please people because, because we're afraid, because I'm afraid of what will happen when I speak the truth. What am I going to lose my job, the, the support of my family, the approval of my friends. Our hearts are fearful and prone to please people. And it's, it's into that kind of world, those kinds of hearts that God calls us to courage Isn't that we want? Isn't that exactly what we want for our sons and our daughters? For them to be courageous people like Peter and John. Do we want safe, comfortable lives? 
tell safe truths, but shy away from, from, from the things that offend? Or do we want ourselves and our families and our posterity to, to be bold, even to the point of death, if that's what it means? To be, to be, our last words to be, it was the name of Jesus that saved me. And it's the name of Jesus that saves anyone. Well, that's the kind of courage. That's what courage looks like. Now, what does courage stand for? Because we also see that fleshed out in this, pic- in this uh, picture in our passage. What does courage stand for? Well, courage stands for all that God's word says. If God's word clearly affirms the truth, we stand upon that. We don't bend. We don't cater. We're not rude about it. We're not arrogant about it. But we don't bend. But courage in this passage, if it stands for one thing crystal clear in the scriptures, it's this, an uncompromising commitment to Jesus as the only way of salvation. The only way. Now, here's what Peter says in verse 11. This is another demonstration of his courage that it stands for Christ as the only way of salvation. He says in verse 11, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. Christ is the cornerstone. What is a cornerstone? Any construction workers in the room? Any builders, architects in the room? Well, a cornerstone, um, as, as I have researched it over the years, it, it is the first stone that is set in construction of a foundation, or at least it's that, it's that pivotal stone that all the other stones in the structure depend upon. Sometimes you see it on the side of a church building and it's, it's in a different color or a different, you, know, you can kind of notice they've painted it a different color and sometimes they put on the cornerstone the, the names of the, of the congreg- of, uh, or the dates in which the congregation was established. Now imagine you go up to that stone, that pivotal stone in a structure of a, of a stone building and you rip it out. What happens? It, it, it all, falls, it all falls down in dust and smoke and debris. All other stones are set with reference to that pivotal part of a foundation. It can't, it can't stand stable without it. And so what we are told here when Peter says, he's the cornerstone. And he, remember, he's quoting from Psalm 118, isn't he? He's quoting Psalm 18. He says, Jesus is the cornerstone. What he is saying is this, that Jesus, the Savior, is the indispensable stone. And yet, he's the one that the Jewish leaders have rejected at this time. They've thrown away the cornerstone as if it was garbage, kicked it to the curb. And they've compromised the whole structure of religion, the whole structure of spiritual devotion to God by doing so. Now, here's how Peter puts it. Jesus is so vital that Peter says right here in verse 12 that there is salvation in no other name. Well, those are controversial words. In fact, at this point, Peter's starting to sound narrow-minded. He's starting to sound... Uh, bigoted. Who is he to tell someone else what name there is in salvation? Who is he to say that Jesus is the only name? That just doesn't sit well in our kind of you do you world, does it? 
Makes people uncomfortable when Peter starts talking this way. But here's the thing. Peter isn't the only one who does it in the scriptures. Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then Paul picks up this up in 1 Timothy 2, 5. He says, there is one God and there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. You say, wow. I guess that narrow-mindedness reaches beyond Peter's statement here. It does. In fact, it pervades the whole scriptures. The whole scriptures are building up to this, this one point that Jesus is the only way of salvation, that you can't have salvation apart from him. You can't be at peace with God except through Jesus. It's, friends, I want to repeat something I, I, I've preached before. This is not narrow-mindedness for the sake of narrow-mindedness. This is pointing to the only true solution to a dire issue. When a doctor knows that you have an illness that can only be cured with one, one, um, one antibiotic that's been developed, and yet everyone around you is telling you, well, have you tried orange juice? Have you tried water? Have you tried chamomile? You know, you'd, you'd look at that, you'd say, this is ridiculous. He needs the medicine. That's what Peter is saying here. He's saying there's only one solution to the problem of sin. Now think about this. If sin is our rebelling against God and deserving eternal separation from him, how do you deal with the problem of our sinful hearts and our sinful situation? You could try to throw good works at it, right? I'm just going to try to be a better person. Try to, try to learn these rules, these religious rules. Then maybe God will see that you're trying to be obedient and he'll listen. It doesn't work. That's like throwing vitamin C at cancer. It doesn't work because before God, even our best efforts are stained by selfish, prideful hearts. We have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now, can't God just overlook it? Can't he just pretend as if our sin didn't happen? No, because he's holy, because he's perfect, because he's just. And so let's go back to 1 Timothy 2.5. What is the only way for us to be right with a God that we have offended? The only way to be right with a holy and just God is if we have a mediator, a go-between. And it can't be any, just any dude. He has to be God himself come in the flesh to be that go-between God and man laying down his life for sinners like us. There's no other way. The only remedy to our problem of sin is Jesus. Now, friends, we need the courage to repeat this truth. This is what courage stands for because it's not, pop, it's not popular. Uh, Ligonier recently did... Um, a survey of the theology of most people in America today. And you can actually filter this survey to see what specific kind of groups of people believe. And if you filter the survey to show what churchgoers believe about this issue, here's what you'll see. You'll see that 56% of people who regularly go to church uh, believe that God accepts worship of all religions 
including Islam and Judaism. 56%. Now, maybe you're hearing this and you're saying, look, pastor, you need to tread carefully because I'm part of that 56%. That's, that's what I believe. Maybe you're sitting here and you're saying, I can't believe that 56% of people believe that. And, and what I want to say to both groups is this, that God is calling us to courageously affirm that there is salvation in no other name except for Jesus. One time um, I, I was listening and I was shocked by what I heard. Um, it was a, a prominent theologian and he was being um, questioned uh, in a public forum by skeptics. They said, are you saying that Jesus is the only way? You're gonna, you're gonna look at all other religions and say that to their face? And in a moment I saw him waver. I, w- I was shocked. This man said, well, you know, maybe, maybe at the end, there is a backdoor entrance that we don't know about. I, can't, I couldn't believe he said it. And then I wondered, would I be bold enough to say that's not true? And then I, I watched as he publicly corrected himself and said, I was wrong. I wavered. I was, I was, trying, I was trying to connect to you. I was wrong. Jesus is the only way. Friends, that's what you need to hear. We need courage to repeat this truth and we need courage to embrace this truth. Where do we get that kind of courage? Where do we get the kind of courage to to stand strong for Christ Jesus? Where do we get the kind of courage to embrace him by faith even when uh, we know that our family's not gonna be happy, our friends are gonna think that we're narrow-minded, Well, courage, friends, comes from communion with Christ. Courage comes from a personal encounter with Jesus and a living and dependent relationship with him. Look at verse 13 with me. Verse 13 says this. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated, common men. They were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. I love that line. I love it. Do you love it? Now, here's this moment. Think back to the court that's happening. And here they are standing before the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin starts questioning. And they start to see this unprecedented boldness. And they start, they, they, they ask their trick questions. And Peter and John just plow right forward. And they make their threats and Peter and John stand firm. It feels like nothing's working. And then this moment of deja vu starts to happen. They say, wait, we've seen this before a few months ago with that Jesus of Nazareth. We hauled him in before us and he didn't take the bait. We threatened him and to the end, he confessed who he is and what he's coming to do. And they, they start to say, are we seeing Jesus or are we seeing Peter and John? And they realize, ah, these are Jesus men. Now, does the world think of us as Jesus men and Jesus women when they hear us 
profess his name and hold to him as that only way of salvation. Because friends, unless we spend time with Jesus, we won't speak of him boldly. Unless we we lean into his word, seek him in his scriptures, and listen to his voice above all other voices, unless we prioritize what you're doing right now, coming and and bowing your heart before him in worship, you're not going to do this. You're not going to have this boldness. You're going to cave. You're going to water it down. Because it's only when the Savior looms so large in our life that powerful people will start to seem small. It's only when Jesus is so sweet to us that we want approval from him and not, and not other men and women. It's, it's only when Jesus' words are received as that rock-solid truth that, that we offer them as the only truth and, and we don't waver. See, friends, the good news of this passage is we can be like Peter and John, Jesus men and Jesus women. Those who spend time with him and and his personality starts to rub off on us. His courage starts to come to us and he gives, he instills us with his courage. Kids, the courage of Jesus can be yours. You can say bold things. Not rude things, but bold things. When people ask you, do you really believe that stuff about Jesus? You can say, yes, I do. He's the only way. Why don't you come and learn about him? Can I tell you something about him? Friends, if if you are well aware of your wavering heart this morning, then I invite you right now to come with me to the Savior. Ask him for forgiveness. Ask him for strength. Ask him for courage. Let's pray. Our dear Savior, it's amazing to see how Peter, who wavered so easily before Christ was raised from the dead, afterwards came to boldly proclaim him. And in front of the same temple authorities who who rocked him to his core, he confessed your name. He turned and he confessed. Lord, we're well aware how we, like Peter, have wavered in the past. But Lord, help us to walk forward. Forgive us. Renew us. And strengthen us with that knowledge that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead and that changes everything. Lord, help us to speak winsome words of witness to our neighbors, to our friends, to our families. Help us to be bold, not rude, but bold and courageous. Help us to do this through Christ who gives us strength. We pray all this in his name. Amen.